Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one, and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow The One Recipe wherever you get your podcasts. Growing up Taiwanese-American, taro has always been in my peripheral. It's used a lot in Taiwanese culture as a dessert, folded into sweet wheat breads, or mashed with tapioca starch to form a chewy topping in an icy sweet crushed ice. I've always eaten it, but never as a main ingredient. While it's mostly an afterthought in modern Taiwanese cuisine as a flavor agent, it was a staple for indigenous populations here for generations. Many tribes would pound the taro into a powder and mix it with wild boar, then wrap it in leaves, and then steam it for many hours. But because of all the waves of colonization here in Taiwan, many of these dishes and techniques have been lost to the mainstream. It is believed that more than a millennium ago, ancient seafarers from Taiwan traveled across the Pacific Ocean and settled in Polynesia, bringing along with them crops like taro, which form the basis of a lot of Polynesian creation stories and folklore. It's a really special plant in Hawaii. When you look back at like the creation story of Hawaii, it's quite literally the brother of man. There's Papa, which was Earth Mother, and Wakea, which is Sky Father, and they had a daughter called Ho'o Kulani. And she ended up having a child which was stillborn. And it looked like a root. And she ended up burying this child who she called Haloa in the ground and ended up mourning over this grave with her tears for, for a long time. But what happened was over time, Haloa sprouted as a plant with heart-shaped leaves. And Ho'oho Kulani, she ended up having another child later on, which was another boy and also named him Haloa, who became the first Hawaiian. I'm Clarissa Way, and you're listening to Climate Cuisine, a podcast that explores how sustainable ingredients are grown and prepared in similar climate zones around the world. Now, in the hands of different cultures, one ingredient can take on so many wondrous forms. And as the world faces dramatic upward shifts in our base temperature, climate-centric discussions on crops will become increasingly important to the resiliency of our food systems. This episode is all about taro, which used to be the world's most widespread food crop before the 15th century, prior to the Colombian exchange of crops between the Americas and the Old World. As one of the world's oldest food crops with a history of over 9,000 years, it is perhaps used most prominently throughout the Pacific Islands from Fiji to Hawaii, and is even featured on coins in Samoa and Tonga. In tropical places around the world, it is sometimes considered an invasive plant. Here in Taiwan where I live, I see it everywhere, on the roadsides, in the mountains. But despite its prevalence, most people have no idea what it looks like. So just imagine a small wrinkly lump in the ground, and from that, a long, elegant stem emerging from that lump. On top of it is a singular leaf, lush, green, and heart-shaped, with a purple dot in the middle. 
I'm starting off in conversation with Arthur Wazerchos, a taro enthusiast who recently moved from Hawaii to Taiwan. I know of him through the permaculture scene in Taiwan, and this is actually my first time speaking to him. Yeah, some of them can be purple, some can be pink, some lilac, some yellow, some white. Some of them will create a V shape where it's not just the dot, but it'll like form the shape of a V. And then not just that dot, but also like the shape of the leaf. Some are wider, some are narrower. And then some taros will have the top of the leaf, that V, that V can come down and join with the dot, what we call the pico. And those are better known for dealing with higher winds, for example, because they're able to, to deal with wind, yeah, the, the way that they're shaped. The ones we have here, they tend to be more fluffy, more soft, you know, great for like putting into ice creams and, and taro milk, you know, all these like taro cake. Oh my God, it's so delicious. I, I love taro cake. But the Hawaiian varieties, they're, a lot of them are more bred for eating the leaf and cooking for a longer amount of time to get rid of the oxalate. Now, oxalate, also known as oxalic acid, is an organic compound found in many plants, including beets, spinach, and sweet potatoes. Taro is extremely high in oxalic acid, so much so that you cannot eat it raw. Some people also are quite sensitive to it. A couple years ago, I was once peeling a raw taro in Costa Rica when my hands began to sting, like an allergic reaction. It might sound terrifying, but cooking helps leach out the oxalic acid, which is why most recipes for taro out there call for cooking it low and slow for a very long time. They tend to have more of that oxalate. And the, the corn, the root, it tends to be denser and stickier. Mm. And specifically because they like to make what's called poi. It's like a, a taro that is steamed, and then you you know you peel the skin off of it and get to the the heart of it, and then using a, like a mortar pestle and pounding it until it becomes like a mochi texture. My mouth is just watering even just thinking about this because I've eaten so much poi and yeah. Hawaii, and we don't have it here. You know, it's like I'm so bummed. But I haven't even found a taro that's that's suitable for it yet. And it was at that time that another friend gifted me my first taro which was a Chinese taro, which in Hawaii goes by the name of Bun Long. He's referring to a variety called Bing Lang taro, or beetle nut taro, which is called that because the tuber is said to look like a beetle nut, petite and perfectly oval. It's the most popular variety in Taiwan and China, where it's usually made into a dessert. You peel it and steam it and can mix it in with sugar or condensed milk. But for the indigenous communities here in Taiwan, they would bake it in a cooking pit. Basically, they'll dig a large hole in the ground, stuff it with hot rocks, stack the taro on top, bury it with some leaves, and then bake it for a few hours until it's completely cooked through. It's a technique that's identical to what's found throughout Polynesia and Hawaii. And eventually I took it to Volcano with me and it, it was growing and it started growing really well. It was actually really difficult to find. I had friends that said, oh, yeah, yeah, I've got taro, you know, and you can have some of my starts. And I started collecting like every start that I could possibly get from all of my friends. And a lot of them ended up being Japanese varieties because they do well with these colder climates. But it still wasn't Hawaiian. I ended up with Palawan variety, which had a lot of runners, you know, a running habit where it shoots out the side. You know, and that's when I realized, oh, wow, there's there's a lot of hybridizing going on. We don't really know the true origins of a lot of these taro. It's been lost because none of it has been tracked. And that's partially of like one way to know what you're truly growing is by knowing the genealogy of it too. 
You know, some of these hybridized ones are so aggressive because they're bred to produce. They're bred to create lots of food in the shortest amount of time. They're literally bred to be so aggressive that they take over everything else. So in a way, we we lose that connection to the earth. I want to get a Hawaiian variety. I want to start growing Hawaiian taro here. You watch it, you grow with it, and you start to notice these little subtle things that it does. And the water dynamics. Water is life. And taro is mostly a water plant although there's some misconceptions it's not like something you just throw in a muddy piece of land with no running water and you expect it to grow well it's helping me teach me healthy water system a tropical root crop with over 80 known varieties taros have been a staple for traditional cultures for generations Global taro production is a primary export of the Pacific Islands, though most of the world's taro production actually happens in Africa, followed by Asia. It can be grown in both aquatic and non-aquatic conditions, and every single part of the plant can be consumed, from the tuber to the leaves. And because it is a tropical plant, it can be eaten and grown all year round. You don't need a whole bunch of plants. You could have that one plant and care for it. You water it every couple of days, you know, put it in nice, well-composted soil that drains well, that doesn't really saturate and hold too much water, and it will grow very well. And it'll take care of you, you know, nine months to maybe a year and a half down the line, depending on the cultivar. It'll feed you the whole time, even if, if that's the purpose that you're doing it for, is to like eat the leaf. I have a few growing on the balcony and, and occasionally make uh, stew or meal with leaves alone. The leaf is incredible. So it's a big leaf. It looks like an elephant leaf. So the- This is Lance Sito, an Australian chef in Fiji who specializes in regional Fijian cuisine and has traveled extensively throughout Fiji throughout the last decade. Taro um, for the Pacific Islanders arrived hundreds, if not thousands of years ago on the early boats. And the leaf itself, bright green, it looks like elephant's ears. But I made the mistake when I first came here and I'm trying everything and I ate it raw and I, I remember one of the locals jumping on me and told me to spit it out. I said, why? Spit it out, spit it out. And then all of a sudden my mouth started to tingle and um, it's got little tiny uh, shards, um, oxalates on the leaf which help protect the leaf from insects. And so you have to cook it properly. You have to boil it for a period of time. Hi, I'm Lance Sito. I'm a chef in Fiji. I'm an Australian. I'm Australian Chinese who got lost in the Pacific Islands more than 10 years ago. So I'm still here. I found my calling here and I rediscovered a love for cooking. And it was through the whole indigenous cuisine here, which was totally new to me. And in the end, I just found my way of life, my purpose and all that sort of thing here in Fiji. Uh, So I've been running resorts here now for over 10 years, uh, four of the top resorts. And just before the pandemic hit last year, I opened my own own restaurant. So to me, taro is one of those things that we sort of don't think about too much about. I sort of intimated earlier about our sources of food in Western countries or certainly the first world countries. We tend to think of them as coming from the supermarket and, and, and not think about the farm. But in places like the Pacific Islands where... There is still a lot of subsistence living. You see it growing on the road. You see it growing in the villages. It's incredible to see a a root vegetable so revered, I guess, by people when I I always grew up with just thinking it's just a vegetable. Tradition, it's cooked here with coconut milk. But there's other recipes. The local Indians here, they actually coat them with spice mixes and they layer it like a lasagna. 
then they roll it and then steam it and then fry it. So that's here as well. The stems has got a, obviously it's got a hard coating, but they peel it off and you're left with this translucent green stem and they cook that in coconut milk as well. So the leaf, the stem, and then of course the root. The root here is used mainly in the earth oven, the lova we call it here. So they put the whole things into the earth oven and then it comes out and you've got this starchy, starchy root crop. But there's other countries here who pound it until it's like a mashed potato, I guess, and then it becomes really elastic. So what are some of the dishes that you have put out in your restaurants with taro? The most popular one is the leaf. So any tourist that comes to the Pacific Islands always asks for the palasami. They get the leaf and they do multiple leaves and they form a little parcel. And then inside the parcel goes fresh coconut, onion, tomatoes, and they fold all that, they bundle it up and they put those into the earth oven. By the time it bakes, you got this, it's kind of like a baked spinach in coconut, but the earth oven gives it that woody, earthy flavor. And it's a must have when you're eating Pacific Island food. So to the English, it would be like eating mushy peas. It's just green and mushy, but that's the most popular. Of course, the root, we cook a lot in the restaurants here as, as chips, as substitutes for potato. It works really well as a mash, but we tend to add other things into it like cream, add butter. So we use it a lot. It's a delicacy here now. So because it's so expensive, it's perfect for restaurant menus where even the locals who, who don't eat it a lot, they just will always go for the taro. And then I was doing some research and and they use the leaf for medicines as well the eyes, for the skin, you know, so I mean, that makes sense. But it's not cheap anymore. And this is where I guess climate change has played its part, where it, it's taking longer to grow. When it's drier, we don't see as much of it. So a lot of the Indigenous people here don't eat it as often as, as their ancestors did. Right, because it requires a lot of water. And now with climate change, it's just a little bit drier. Right. So when it doesn't rain, we get less taro. And so when the taro does appear, of course, the farms are trying to get the most that they can for it. We sell them in big bundles. So when I first saw them, they looked like a teepee. So they're all sort of tied together and standing up. And I didn't quite know what it was because in Australia, you just buy it from the supermarket and you, and you only see the root. We don't eat the leaf in our countries, but you see the whole thing here. Then you see the taro leaves, they're they're sold as well. And yeah, so it's an extraordinary root crop here in the Pacific Islands. Traditionally, taro was grown in these elaborate polycultured terrace systems on the edges of fish ponds with other plants like bananas, papayas, coconuts, and sugarcane. As a shade-loving plant, it thrives beneath trees. Here in Fiji, the land here is mostly owned by the indigenous people. It's 90 plus percent is still owned by the indigenous people. So they use a lot of that land to grow these root crops. And so they usually come down from faraway places near the water areas. So the areas of Fiji that have higher amounts of water, that's where we tend to find more of the taro. But today these systems are rare and capitalism and colonization have made taro cultivation an unsustainable industry. In Hawaii, for example, old taro fields were actually stolen by European colonizers for commercial interests. Now, Hawaiians used to fertilize their taro fields by planting weeds between the taro patches, trampling on them and burying them in the soil prior to planting. It was a labor-intense project. A taro farmer had to have access to lots of clean and fresh water. 
and would have to hand weed and pluck invasive snails from the fields. But nowadays, the pressures of large-scale farming means a heavy use of nitrogen-based fertilizers, which can enter freshwater streams and rivers into the ocean and pose an environmental threat to fragile marine ecosystems. Also, before colonization, 600 heirloom varieties of taro used to grow on the islands, and they had all these different textures and vivid colors, blue, yellow, and pink. But because commercial taro is rarely allowed to go to seed, the gene pool is quite small, and commercial taro is really susceptible to diseases. The risk with this is the loss of the true heirloom cultivars. With the genetic manipulations and crossbreeding, and we could create a taro that looks exactly the same as one of the originals, but it won't be exactly the same. It might have a slight difference as far as how many babies it creates, or like a slight shade to the stem where it has maybe a stripe or two that, that normally it wouldn't, you know, or like a black edge on the leaf instead of a white edge on the leaf. It gets down to that level where it's like one little tiny descriptor for two plants that look almost identical. My concern would be the nutrition of it. You know, when we start hybridizing things, it's often the case where the nutrient value of that plant is lost. It's not something we're necessarily evolved for. Today, only 60 of those remain, a mere fraction of the diversity that once existed. When we talk about sustainability, it's important to realize that almost any crop can be grown sustainably or unsustainably. This is Ryan Nebecker, a research and policy analyst at Foodprint, an organization dedicated to increasing public awareness of our current industrial food print. A lot of our work is actually focused on food that can be really problematic. So we, we've issued longer reports in the past about beef, pork, chicken, livestock that can be raised on factory farms in ways that are really damaging to the environment and focusing on sustainable alternatives and ways to do that, as well as just kind of more conventional crops that make up a big chunk of our diet, like corn and soy. But yeah, the food print is important just because I think many of us are used to not thinking about our food very much, or we think a lot about things like taste and nutrition, and it's really easy to forget that since food is pretty cheap for most of us, we tend to forget that we don't always see the entire price tag and that when something is cheap, it's often because someone else is paying for it. And whether that's because of a government subsidy program that's designed to help us afford food, or if it's because somebody in the labor chain is being exploited or the damage is kind of being pushed onto the environment, it's important to understand sometimes where the problems are and Important to know that even though we can't solve every problem by buying better products, we can start to chip away at the difference just because our food system looks the way it does for a reason. And when we're not fully in control of that, it is designed to serve us and the things that we're asking for at the end of the day. So, you know, better consumption isn't the only answer, but it can help quite a bit. We have our Real Food Encyclopedia, which gives you information about seasonality, sustainability for a lot of different foods. And taro is one of the many plants they have reports on. So depending on the area where it's grown, wetland taro can be grown whenever you're able to do the irrigation, which in many places is year-round. Dryland taro is a little more dependent on water. So in tropical areas, it's less about winter and spring and more about wet and dry seasons. And so obviously you're going to see a more productivity in the dry season. 
sustainable ways to produce it that have been in practice for a very long time. And that's kind of the traditional way of producing taro. These wetlands have been kind of very carefully dug out and shaped in a way that they trap silt that runs off of streams and rivers. And then at the end, they actually end up returning the water to the stream. So it's this kind of conservation-oriented practice that says we want this infrastructure to last for a long time. At the same time, there's ways of producing taro that are less sustainable. And as cultivation has spread around the world more, I, taro doesn't originate in Hawaii. It originally comes from Southeast Asia and spread across the old world that way. It was one of the key provisions for Polynesian sailors back in the day who would carry hardy plants like yams, breadfruit, and taro in their canoes. They would swathe the tubers in moss and swaddle it in bark and hang it from the roof of their canoes. Those that survived were planted upon arrival, which is why taro can be found through Southeast Asia and Polynesia today. But as uh, cultivation has really expanded in some areas, we've seen less sustainable production methods happen where they're flushing a lot of water through fields. But when it's done in this way that's mindful of the local environment and incorporates other species, allows kind of a home for other aquatic plants, native birds, things like that, it can be a really productive thing for the ecosystem. So there's two different kinds of taro. Uh, there's what we call upland and then there's wetland. So there's similar varieties, but one is grown in dry land, that's upland taro, and the other is grown in kind of patties, a lot like we see with rice. And in Hawaii, where taro has been grown for thousands of years at this point, those patties have shaped entire watersheds. And it can even prove to have a net positive in a changing climate with rising sea levels and increased flooding. A taro can survive for at least a week underwater and can grow back if a patch is flooded, which makes it ideal as an emergency food supply. So when we're talking like Florida, where it may be getting flooded, if the seawater comes in, chances are you're not going to really have a good taro, unless you're specifically like for generations breeding in that area with a high salt environment. Because there are certain varieties. There's one one variety, I can't remember the, the name of the cultivar in Hawaii that is known for doing better in higher salt conditions. So if we were to take, say, that variety and continue breeding it in that environment, take it to its boundaries, you know, over time, it would change. Wow. That's one of the amazing things about taro is that it's highly adaptable. It, it does change. Within just a few generations, you can get somatic mutation where, you know, suddenly like, You'll have this one variety, they all look the same, and then just one little baby off the same plant will look totally different than the mother. And then you could take that baby and raise it separately, and oftentimes it'll revert back to the original state, but sometimes it stays. And it continues, and over many, many generations, it could create another like somatic mutation, you know, where it changes and starts looking or behaving differently according to whatever environment it's in. If every single farmer had their own taro patch, we could start having our own taro over time that develops to be suitable for our own backyard or our own community for that particular microclimate or, or environment. That's kind of what I learned about Hawaiian taro is that's what happened. Like every region had their own taro. It wasn't just like the island. It was 
potentially like 300 different cultivars coming throughout the islands and from different regions. Some did better in dry areas, some did better in cold water, some did better in warm water, some did better in, in dry land environments, some did better in that waterlogged environment. You know, it depends on the environment that they put it in, where we as farmers work with it. Climate Cuisine is part of the Whetstone Radio Collective. We'll be back next week with a show about cactus and talk about how it's a symbol of defiance in Palestine, how it's used in Mexican cooking, and why people believe it's a crop of the future. A thank you to the Climate Cuisine team, co-producer and audio editor Kat Hong, researcher Olivia Maeda, intern Indio Clarkson, and production assistant Xin Yun. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer Celine Glazier, sound engineer Matt Kotolchuk, associate producer Quentin LeBeau, and sound intern Simon Lavendar. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, on Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemedia.com.